listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. married in 2007. This coming week is actually my 14-year anniversary. Uh, shortly after we were married, I was married to my wife, the one who was up here singing, um, the, the female, the girl that was up here singing, uh, the pretty one on stage. Uh, that's actually why David's up here, is uh, just to help, help her look uh, better. We brought her up here just so as you, as you have David up here, you're like, man, I, I know he doesn't look great, but compared to Shannon, it's like, oh, this is really rough. So pray for Ashton in light of that. But me and Shannon were married, and 14 years ago, shortly after we were married, my, uh, I started having this stomach pain, and uh, I'd never really been sick, never had a whole lot of trouble, physical pain in my whole life. And so uh, it, was, it was odd, it was strange. And it got to the point where I honestly couldn't even stand up straight. If I tried to stand up straight, I would, uh, it was just, it was painful. And I, this is how I began living my life, <laughs> most of it. And so I was working uh, at a fast food restaurant for a while. And so I would stand up as I went up to the front and see my employees and our guests. And, and I would engage with them like this. And then I would go through the back door and I was just like, oh man. And I was, uh, I couldn't hold anything down. My stomach was killing me. I, I kept... Uh, throwing up in the, in the trash can in the back. It was just like nothing was working. If I was standing up, it hurt. So I go to the doctor, obviously. And so the doctor, I you know, tell him all my symptoms, and he said, oh, it sounds like you have IBS. And I was just like, okay, sounds great. Uh, they didn't really do a whole lot of tests, but I trusted him. So this is when we trusted doctors, you know, 14 years ago. And so I said, I said, okay, I'll start taking some Metamucil every single day just to get things going through my system a little bit better. And never had issues with that before, but he said, hey, it sounds like you have this problem. So I said, okay. So it didn't fix the problem. I went back a few months later. Problem is still there. And he, I, he said, well, let's just, let's just keep trying it. I'm just like, you just want me to keep paying you. And so uh, after several more months, my wife said, let's get a second opinion. I'm like, that'd be, I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. I, I can't stand up. So that would be fantastic. So I go back to the doctor again, a different doctor, and they say, let's run some more tests. And so they actually do, uh, you know, a, an ultrasound or something in my stomach. And they come back and they say, oh, you have a hernia. And this hernia, I guess there are three levels of a hernia. This was right at the edge of step two, right into phase three. Once it goes into phase three, it becomes a strangulated, and you can die within an hour because it just blocks off all circulation. Some of y'all are nurses and doctors, and you're like, he has no idea what he's talking about. Again, I listen to the doctor, so don't blame it on me. I'm just the middleman here. Don't shoot the messenger. So for at least a while... I've been living with this, and I go in to get surgery shortly thereafter. He said, he said, yep, that's definitely what it is. Let's have emergency surgery. So as I came out of surgery, I come to, the doctor goes out and tells my wife, uh, he said, I have never seen a hernia that large. He said, he's had that for 10 to 15 years, but I was diagnosed for almost a whole year with IBS, something that I have not ever struggled with, and I didn't struggle with it at the time. But here's what I want us to see from my medical history, okay, is this, that right treatment must be based on a right diagnosis. If you want to get the treatment right for something that's messed up, you must get the diagnosis right first. Otherwise, you're just going to be spinning your wheels. And if I had kept going back to that original doctor, they would have said, you know what, that doesn't work, let's try something else, or let's try the same thing, or let's just, let's just try to keep putting a Band-Aid on this. 
Now I'm fine. It hasn't bothered me in, in 13 years since I had that surgery. So we can look around culturally, and we know that things are messed up. So you're like, okay, how does your medical history, uh, how are we looking at that as far as we are South Point? Uh, does anybody else want to talk about their medical history so we can just share this? This is what we're, I'm just kidding. So uh, when we look around, though, culturally, we have the same problem. And often we're just like, okay, here's, here's a symptom. Let's try to treat it with this. But we can look around, and we know that things are messed up. We, people are depressed. People are committing adultery. People are just steeped in lust. People are broke. Some of y'all work way too much, way more than somebody else. Somebody, some of y'all are just poor. We, we know that these are real problems that are around us all the time. Georgia hasn't really won. None of our sports teams have, have won a championship of any sort in years. So we can look around and we know things are messed up. We can identify with that, like something is wrong. So here's the first question I want to answer this morning. How does the culture address our problems? And I, I broke these down. These are alliterated because that's one of my spiritual gifts. So here are the things that we often like to do. Here's what the culture does. First of all, we want to remove ourselves from the problem so often. We want to escape. We do that a lot of times with pills, with alcohol, with other drugs. We want to escape reality. We like to make excuses. Well, it's my parents' fault. It's the way that I was raised. It's the government's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my kid's fault. It's my sibling's fault. It's somebody else's fault. If you have kids, you know how that blame shifting works. Uh, this past week, I was, uh, my youngest, Kingston, he's six, and uh, he, he, he rode his little buddy um, pedal thing uh, into our basketball goal at my parents' house, and he, he was distracted. But he runs into it, and you see him sitting there thinking, how can I get out of this? I mean, he literally sat there. He just did, and it, it wasn't a big deal. He didn't break anything, but he sat there. He said, it was my brother's fault. Axel's the one who was distracting me. <laughs> it's like excuses. We look to entertainment. So if you have problems in your life, what do you often do? Like, man, I don't want to deal with this right now. Let me pull up my phone and just start scrolling. Let me turn on Netflix. Let me get away from this. Let me amuse myself. The, the word muse means to think. It means to ponder. It means to be right there in the middle of something. But amusement means to not think. And so when we deal with problems, we want to avoid those problems. So instead of thinking about them and pondering them, we entertain ourselves. We want to remove ourselves. We want to turn our brains off from those things. We try to cover up reality with experiences. I've talked to so many folks, and they're like, man, one day I'm going to go to Disney, right? And some of y'all are like, man, we go to Disney a couple times a year. Yes, you're the kind of people I'm talking about. So uh, somebody, maybe you're talking about somebody else. No, it's you. And so you talk to these people, they're like, one day I'm going to go to Disney. But it, that's, I'm just going to go one time, just one experience for my kids. But then you go, and all of a sudden you're like, I love paying $9,000 a visit. You know what? Instead of going once a year, I'm going to go twice a year because it's the most magical place in the world. And my life is terrible. So now I can go experience this fake reality and save up for it and go into credit card debt all year long so that I can escape with this experience. Anybody there? Don't raise your hands. We know who you are. Y'all have social media. Or we go to the experts. You say, well, what's the problem here? What's the, what's, the, what's the issue with culture? Well, here's what the doctor said. We see that all over the place right now. It doesn't matter which side of which kind of aisle you fall on. And I'm talking about like this aisle or this aisle. But whichever side you fall on, you're like, yeah, well, it's the experts' fault. They said this a year ago. Now they're saying this. But we want it to be someone else's fault. The last thing the culture does is we set up certain expectations. 
and we do this as parents, we want to live vicariously through our kids. Well, I'll tell you what, when I was in high school, if I didn't have this coach, I would have been playing in the NBA. Yeah, sure thing, I'm only, you know, 5'7", and uh, I, can, I can barely get my feet off the ground, but, uh, you know, it's my coach's fault. And so what we do is we set up expectations for our kids. Th- there's a very slim chance that the number of kids that we have in here that are playing sports are all going to be pros. There's a, and I, knew, I know your kid is different, but we set up these expectations for our kids in order to remove us from reality. And so rather than actually dealing with the problem of, man, my, my child's greatest need is not to be rich and famous, but is to be saved by the one who created them, we say, you know what, let's, let's just avoid that for now. And let's create these other expectations. So what we do, what the culture has done is we've tried to fight evil with evil. And we know that these things just don't work because this is a cycle. And we're like, you know what, that didn't work. Let's find something else. Let's find something else to try to solve this problem that we find ourselves in. We never come to grips with the fact that we have to look outside of ourselves. We never come to grips with the fact that there's got to be a bigger plan. We, we don't come to grips with the fact that we can't be both the problem and the solution. You can't be both of those things, yet we try and try and try. And the problem with the church is that we've adopted the culture's perspective. So many churches, you're like, what is, what is this church about? Whatever fill-in-the-blank church it is. So many cultures are about keeping people rather than forming people. Many churches are about numbers, or they're about money, or they're about social justice issues, or they're uh, about trying to be most theologically pure. Like these are all their, their, their focus, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But many churches have said, let's take on this issue. Let's be an issue-driven church, and that's going to be our focus. And we love that kind of stuff. The church has not given people what they needed, but it's given people what they've wanted. That's by and large how our churches are made up. Now, I'll share this analogy with you. If, If my kids had their way, all they would eat is fried food and probably sugar and if they can get some fried sugary food even better right that's all they would eat my my kids started school this past week and they provide lunch there at the school and we asked kingston my six-year-old hey what'd you eat for lunch pizza all right next day what'd you eat for lunch pizza and you're like, well, he's six years old. Like, you have to train him and, and discipline you know, him out of that. And I don't mean, like, beat, him out, you know, beat it out of him. But you got to be like, hey, hey, bro, you, you can't just eat pizza your whole life. But as the church, we've done that. We're like, hey, what, what do y'all want? Oh, you know what? Let's do that. L- let's sing that song. L- let's make it look like that. Oh, you're, you're upset about where, where the chairs are? Oh, you know what? We'll put them back next week. I'm real sorry about that. Like, we have all these issues. We're not most concerned with what people need. Most churches are concerned with what people want. And so the misdiagnosis of the mission of the church has led us to a really bad treatment. We've misdiagnosed the mission of the church because we can look around and say, man, I don't feel like the church is thriving the way that God designed it to But you know what? Let's just keep doing what we're doing. Let's just keep trying to make people happy. Our greatest desire and God's greatest desire is to be in relationship with him. 
Our greatest desire as a church is the presence of God. That's it. That is our greatest desire. And I say that as one of the pastors. I say that as one of you. That is our greatest desire, and that should be our greatest desire for one another is the presence of God. So here's what I want us to see this morning. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1. Our heartbeat, our heartbeat as a church. So we say we are South Point. Our heartbeat is knowing more of Jesus. As South Point, our heartbeat is knowing more of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. So be, before we get, and we're going to look at the next, for the next couple of weeks, at the what of South Point. Here's what we do, and I, I mentioned that. We're going to look at uh, life groups and DNA groups and some other facets of what makes South Point South Point, and it, it'll be kind of a different sermon series. But before we look at the what of how our church functions, I want us to see the why. So this morning is the why. Colossians chapter 1. Paul is writing, you can start in verse number 1. It says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So Paul is writing to the church in where? To the church in Colossae. Now, we're going to see in just a minute, he's not just, Paul doesn't just write letters for the sake of writing letters. Paul writes letters for a certain purpose. So if we're going to see, I'll go ahead and tell you now, okay? So uh, we know that this church in Colossae, they were doing really good things. And he begins in these first few verses, he's like, man, those good things that you're doing, keep doing those. But as we get down to verse number 15, he's going to say, but don't forget, here's why you're doing those things. So we pick up in verse number three. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it always does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So he begins here, he says, you understand the gospel. You believe the gospel. Now, there are many things that are gospel-centered, okay? Uh, there are a lot of things. We, we put that as an adjective on all kinds of things that we do in this life. We have gospel-centered books. We have gospel-centered coffee mugs. We have gospel-centered Bible studies. We have gospel-centered fried chicken. We have all sorts, we have gospel-centered cruises. We have all sorts of gospel-centered things. But we must first define when he says here, well, what is the gospel? When he says, and he doesn't spell it out until a little bit later, but he's like, you understand this, so you use this word. Now let's discuss this. So we see three things in the text. First of all, the gospel is defined by the Bible. The gospel is defined by the Bible. If you're using that gospel-centered or the word gospel, and there's some other follow-up, some other predicate that comes alongside after gospel something, it's like, is that in the scripture? Is it there? Because here he doesn't just say, you believe the gospel, whatever you want it to mean. You can apply it however you want to apply it. He says, no, what does he say in verse number Verse number five, of this you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel. This is what God says about himself in his word, about himself and about us as his creation. So he says, this must be defined by the Bible. Now, 
Some would look at the Bible and say that's a, a book of spiritual encouragement or that's a, a book made up of stories or of myths or of tales or some really good stuff about a really good guy named Jesus. But he says here, and this is what we believe as, as the church, at this church, is that this word is completely infallible. There's no error in this. This contains everything we need for life and godliness. You're not going to look and say, man, uh, you know what? You know, I just flipped to Haggai. You know, Haggai, there are some parts that are wrong. We're not going to say that. We're not going to disagree. This is the word of God, the infallible, inerrant word of God. This isn't just a book that says, hey, be more like these folks. We don't read the Old Testament and say, hey, be more like Adam. Be more like Moses or Abraham or like we saw a couple of weeks ago, David. No, the scriptures point to Jesus being the better Adam, the better Moses, the better Abraham, the better David because the scriptures point to Jesus. That's the point of the Bible. So our gospel centeredness, he says you believe the gospel, the gospel must, believe, must begin with the Bible. It's not about, hey, be more brave, try harder. You know what, those five areas of, of weakness in your life, David picked up five stones. Now let's figure out how we defeat those five giants in your life. No, the story of David points to Jesus. Jesus is the point of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, I think this is up on the screen. But 1 Corinthians 15, it says in verses 1 through 4, this again is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Now, they were in trouble when Paul was writing. They were much different than the Colossians. But Paul says this as he winds down at the end of his letter. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach you, preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. Now listen, if you're confused about what the good news of the gospel is, here Paul explains it succinctly and quickly, but he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has identified with us in his life, that we can identify with him in his death, that he was put into the ground for three days, but three days later the spirit has raised him back to life. He walked around, he was seen, as Paul continues right there in that chapter, he was seen by others for 40 days, and then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And right before he did, what does Jesus say to his disciples? We see it in the Gospels. We see it in the beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8. But he says, okay, I've done all these things. Now go make disciples. Now go be disciples who are making disciples. That's discipleship. Go train them in the things historically that we've seen that will bring transformation to their lives because of the finished work of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Now notice here, and we saw it in Colossians chapter 1, both of these things, there's future hope offered. So Paul doesn't say, okay, this is something that we're putting our hope in. This is a decision that we made. We're not just coming building. And uh, this, this lady, she asked me, she said, she was sitting there on the couch, and she was the bride's grandmother. And she said, uh, she heard that I was one of the pastors here, and she said, now, are, are y'all a full gospel church? Now, some of y'all, you know what that means. That's code for uh, are y'all charismatics, essentially. But me being the type of person that I am, I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we believe the full gospel, absolutely. And she said, no, no, no. <laughs> she kind of leans in. She said, are y'all a full gospel church? 
And I was like, every single Sunday, we preached the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We, we preached the full gospel. And she said, she said, do you understand what I'm asking you? And I was just like, oh, I don't know. I haven't been to seminary, you know? And so I, I was just like, uh, you mean the, the full gospel? She, she, said, she said, yeah, okay, well, maybe y'all are. And she just kind of kept going in our conversation. She was like, I'm not stopping here. I don't have time to wait for this guy. He's way too slow. And I'm like, fair enough. But we see here, the full gospel is that. There, there's nothing that we're adding to the gospel. We can't take anything away from this. Here's the full gospel. Now here's how we experience that here's how that impacts us each and every Sunday and we say this but here's our Sunday and we use the term liturgy that just means the order or the flow of service but we do this every single week the gospel impacts us primarily on Sundays in this way our service is organized in this way that we begin with the holiness of God and you hear us say that a lot of times during the welcome as, as we plan our Sunday gatherings every single week, we're going through these four elements because we want the gospel to be present, not just in the preached word, but as we sing songs, as there's a call to worship a God who is holy. This morning, the call to worship was remember who Christ is and what he has done. So we celebrate the fact that God is holy. How great thou art. God is holy. Man, look at what he has done. But then secondly, we respond with the fact that not just that God is holy, but we are sinners. We are sinners in need of a holy and gracious God to step in. Our sin has separated us from the presence of God right now and forever unless we get to the third part where Jesus saves us. So this morning we sang about the holiness of God. We said, remember who Christ is and what he has done. And then we sing in Christ alone. He came as a baby. He lived for us. He was put on a cross. Remember these things. But then three days later, we just sang this, right? He was raised to life. And we can look forward to the hope that we have in Christ. Jesus is the one who, before we were even thought of to our parents, he's the one who knew that person is going to spend eternity with me. And so when Christ was on the cross, he knew, I'm going to save my people unto myself. He chooses us before the foundation of the world. He adopts us into his family. He doesn't say, uh, you know what, if you want to be adopted, come let me know. That's not how adoption works. Several of us in here, of y'all, have adopted little kids. At no point did they have any say-so in where they ended up as children. The same way that you didn't get to pick who's, who your parents were when you were born. You just didn't. The parents that we pick, apart from Christ, are those that are going to damn us to hell eternally. But God, Ephesians 4, sorry, Ephesians 2, verse number 4, but God steps in and Jesus saves us. He adopts us. He, he chooses us. Then in a moment, he brings to bear our sin through the power of the Spirit. He regenerates our hearts. He justifies us. In other words, our sin was put on Christ. There are two options. Either you pay the penalty of your sin and you spend eternity separated from God and there are plenty in this world where that will be the case. Or Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin and you will be in his presence forever. Those are the two options. You're like, well, I don't really like the second one of those options. That doesn't seem fair. No, no, the first option is not fair. The first option where God steps in and where Jesus Christ, his perfect son, sinless, never did anything wrong, never thought anything wrong, is put to death for us. 
where the father turns his back on his son. That's the part that's not fair. He adopts us. He justifies us. We're made right. Our standing before God is made right. And for many of us, we're like, oh, yeah, well, get back to those theological terms. Okay, uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification. Like, we, we enjoy those. But, but may the glory and the grace of God sink deep into our hearts as we're reminded of who we were before the sacrifice of Christ. And may we find great joy. We saw this last week in Psalm 51. David doesn't say to, to God as he's crying out and confessing his sin, he doesn't say, you know what? You know what, God? Uh, I read some of these things in a, in a theology book. Let me reference those. And let me be reminded and make sure I've got everything together just cognitively. No, he says, remind me of the joy of my salvation. May this exude out of my heart, out of my mouth, out of my life. So we're justified by Christ. And then by the power of the Spirit, we walk in sanctification, which means we are growing in holiness. And then we're looking to this future hope that we call glorification. And it's all because Jesus Christ steps in and saves us. So we sing songs, we read scripture, we hear sermons, we partake in communion in this flow because we exalt God. We're reminded of our sin. We celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf. And then at the end of each one of our services, Jesus sends us. So we don't just show up here next Sunday and it's like, okay, yeah, feed me, feed me, feed me. Okay, then we're done. You know what happens if, if all you ever do is eat and you never exercise? Yeah, some of us know. It, but we are supposed to be sent. So we come to this table. We come to the scripture and we're fed. And then we go and we tell other people. And we don't have all the answers, right? We're not like, hey, hey, come to me. Come, come to my church. But we say, come to Jesus. We're, we're just beggars going and telling other beggars, hey, here's the bread of life. Here's food. It's in Christ. And so Jesus sends us as missionaries, even here to Henry County. So we're sent. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he was a, a preacher. He's called the Prince of Preachers. He, he preached mainly through um, the second half of, 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 the 20, uh, of the 20th century. And uh, there was a young man, he went to hear this guy preach, and the guy was actually preaching an Old Testament passage. And afterwards, this young preacher, he came to Charles Spurgeon, who was world-renowned, still, I mean, the greatest preacher. Um, that probably the world has possibly ever known, maybe except for Paul. And so this young man goes to, to Charles Spurgeon and says, uh, Spurgeon, did you like my sermon? And, and Spurgeon said, I did not happen to like it at all. And the young man said, but everything just fit real nicely, didn't it? Spurgeon said, I didn't, I didn't like that. And the young man said, well, everything, it just flowed off my tongue. It was oratorically pleasing. And Spurgeon said, I happen not to like that either. And the young man, after several more, like making his case of why Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, should have liked his sermon, the young man finally says, okay, then tell me why you did not like my sermon. And Spurgeon says, because there was no Christ in your sermon. And the young man says, well, there was no Christ in the text. And this passage, passage did not mention the name of Jesus. So the young man thought that he was doing a good job. And Spurgeon said, Every part of the scriptures point to Jesus. He said, and he was in London at this time, that's where Spurgeon did most of his ministry, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle there. And Spurgeon said, every single road in, in England finds its end in London. And London was the hub. All these roads were going everywhere. He said, in the same way that every road finds its end in London, every single passage finds its end in Jesus. That's the one that we celebrate. 
And he said, if there happens not to be a road to Jesus, we're going to make one. So that's what Spurgeon, as he says, man, everything points to Jesus. Everything in our Sunday gatherings, everything that we preach and teach points to Jesus. So to be gospel-centered, we must, first of all, be defined by the Bible. But secondly, we go on in verse number nine. Let's pick up there. We're going to see the gospel-centered means we're defined by where we go for, validate, for validation. Gospel-centered is defined by where we go for validation. Verse number nine. And so from the day we heard, this is Colossians 1, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has, notice this next word, who has qualified you, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, remember, Paul is writing this to the church in Colossae saying, y'all are doing really good things. Keep going in that, but don't forget that your validation, that your qualification comes from Christ. And so if we are to be gospel-centered, we must be reminded that our qualification to be in the presence and to be in community with God, our creator, is not from us, but it's from Jesus and Jesus alone. Here's a test for that. Do you wake up in the morning and you feel like you have to earn God's favor that day in order for him to smile upon you? Or at night, when you're laying in bed, do you look back and think, man, I wonder what God's report card is on me today. I wonder if I'm in good relationship with the Father based on what I did. In the midst of sorrow, where do you run? In the midst of joy and gladness, do you forsake the things of Christ? Do you run to a spouse? Do you run to entertainment? In the middle of spiritual depression, do you run to a decision that you made years ago? When we believe the gospel, we know that we can run to Christ. He is the one who validates us. And so no matter what our day is going to look like or what it looked like, if we are in Christ, we are in perfect communion with the Father because of his sacrifice, not because of what we have done. I had a guy working on my house this week, and uh, he told me his life story, and I've, I've known the guy a little bit. Um, and I asked him a question about something that he had just bought. And I was like, man, that's a, that's a pretty sweet purchase. How'd you, how'd you come upon that? And he doesn't go to this church. But he said, my preacher told me that when I, do the, when, I, when I do things that are good, then God is going to bless me. And I thought, interesting, because you just got through telling me about the first 50 years of your life, and you don't deserve anything good. Like, this doesn't even make sense with his own worldview. Like, it, it, didn't even, it didn't even compute in his mind that the blessing of God is not based on what we do. We are sinners, and Jesus steps in. It's through his redemption that Paul says right here, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He is the one who has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Where do you go for validation? Where do you go to be qualified? But then the last thing that we're going to see in these last few verses, and this is where we started, and this is where I want us to, to finish up. Being gospel-centered, 
is defined by finding beauty in Jesus Christ above all else. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, talking about Jesus that he just referenced. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is the thing, he might be preeminent. That means he might be first. When it says firstborn, he's the firstborn from God. It doesn't mean that God created him first. It means that he was the best. He is the preeminent one. He is the one that identifies with the glory of God perfectly. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. We see a few different prepositional phrases in here and all of these things point to Jesus. You picked up on them probably. I tried to uh, put a little more emphasis on them. But notice we see four prepositional phrases in here that point to Jesus and who he is and what he has done. The first one, he says right there in verse number 16, he says, for by him. In other words, here's what our culture has done. Our culture has said, I want to take the transcendence of God and I want to trade it for my own transcendence. So instead of looking at the way that we were created in the image of God, we want to now create our own image for ourselves. And we can define our own identity. Even if that identity runs in contrast with the identity that we receive from God the Father. Even if it overrides the identity of God. We have traded God's transcendence for my transcendence. But he says right here, all of these things came by him. It says, this, this is what God has done. He is the creator. He is the one who just spoke things into existence. He's the one who holds the universe. He holds the whole world. He's got the whole world in his hands. Remember seeing that as a little child? And right now we feel like we do because we're in control. And when things begin to teeter, we're like, oh man, I thought I held the whole world in my hands. No, go back to like first grade. He still has the whole world in his hands. He measures the expanse of the universe with just a span he is the one who has the number of hairs on your head numbered, whether they're great or in the negatives at this point. He knows all of those things. He knows your thoughts. He knows the intent of your heart. He is the one who has designed and created. All of these things came by him. The earth is his footstool. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Herman Barvink, he, he was a, or Bavink, he was a theologian who actually died right at about 100 years ago last week. But he said this, God and God alone is man's highest good. God and God alone is man's highest good. All things have come by him. But secondly, we see not only did all things come by him, but if you look down at, at verse, later in verse number 16, all things were created through him. His identity, Christ's identity is, is tied to his work. Matthew 16, it says this. Jesus is talking, and he's talking here uh, primarily to Peter, and Peter is saying, uh, Jesus, I want to be on a throne with you. I want to be worshiped and glorified alongside of you. Here's what Jesus said about his identity. Here's what Jesus said about his work. He says in Matthew 16, uh, beginning in verse 13, he says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now his identity is not just, hey, he's the Christ, okay, let's move on. No, he's the Christ who had a job to do. He came and sacrificed himself. Now if we keep reading, here's what it says. In chapter 16, verse number 24, it says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus says, all things come through me, including salvation. In the same way that I have come as God in flesh to sacrifice myself, to identify with you, he says, in order to come to me, through me, he says, you must take up your cross and die to yourself. Our identity is, is tied and it's contingent upon our willingness to die, our willingness to obey. So all things are by him, all things are through him, but then if we keep going, we see that all things are for him. He says right there at the very end of verse 16, all things were created for him. Now this is, uh, oftentimes we want to look to God as, and, and find out the good that's for us. We look to God and we're like, God, you're so good, you're good, you're good to us. Thank you for being good to us. But we neglect the fact that his identity, who he is, his essence is not just good to us, but being with him is good for us. Oftentimes we look at his goods and we're like, you know what, thanks for providing these things for us. Instead of looking at his goodness and his essence, we say thank you for providing for us when in reality, we should be running to him and saying, you are our provision. You are the one that we run to, not just the good things that you have given us. We, we don't just because of having a relationship with him, we don't just get things. But because of the finished work of Christ, we get God. We get to be in a relationship in his presence with him. Then lastly, the, the, the fourth, the last prepositional phrase that we see here in verse number 17, and he repeats some of these throughout, but he says, in him all things are held together. In him. In other words, he dwelt fully with us. In him, he brought the glory of God down to our planet. In him, God's glory dwelt so that we could dwell with him fully one day. That's the good news of Christ's finished work. Not just that we have hope here for today and we have some way of making sense of this world, but that our hope is with him, that we are going to be with him physically for all of eternity, that we are going to be with him spiritually for all of eternity. That's our true hope, is that we get to be in his presence if we are in him. John 17, 3, this is up on the screen. John 17, 3 says this, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Habakkuk 2 says this, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He says, I can be known, and I want you to know me. I want you to be in my presence. 
Romans chapter 11 says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Wherever else you think that you're running to find some sort of satisfaction, friend, know this morning that it will not satisfy. If you're running to something to escape reality, if you're running to entertainment, wherever else you are running, it will not satisfy. For many of us, we think apostasy is the worst thing that you can do, turning your back on God, losing your salvation. And Chris preached on that a couple of weeks ago, how there are so many that are deconverting from Christianity. I honestly don't think that's our greatest fear this morning at South Point. That's not mine for us. My greatest fear is not that we would apostatize, but my greatest fear is that we may be living in apathy. That there are so many other things in our lives where we find hope and love and joy that we are apathetic about this God. This God whose whose wisdom and riches are unsearchable. We'd rather know more about our Enneagram number and how that relates to other numbers than we would the attributes of God. We're more concerned with the Braves pitching staff than we are about the fruit of the Spirit. We know more, many of us, about how to rebuild an old car and what kind of value is in that than we do about discipling our kids and being part of a, of a DNA group or a life group that is pushing against the darkness of our society. I think Satan's biggest temptation for us, maybe as the American church, but at least for our church, is not that we would be turning from the faith but it's that we would be bored with Jesus. So I would ask you, I would compel you to examine your heart. Are you bored with Jesus or are you pursuing him? Have you lost your first love? Are you possibly like the Colossian church? Are you going through the motions, doing really good things, but maybe Christ is not preeminent in your life? He is the one that we sing to. He is the one that we celebrate. God is more beautiful, more trustworthy, more true, more brilliant, more strong, more worthy than anything else that we can worship, than anything else that we can give our lives to. That's why we sing loudly. That's why we gather, we mourn over sin. That's why we pray. That's why we go to him. It's not to make us feel better, not to make us better. This is not about self-improvement. This is about self-denial. He doesn't say, hey, come join me on the throne on this earth so you can rule. He says, no, take up your cross, die to yourself. Jesus Christ, our heartbeat is for him. Our greatest desire is for his presence here on this earth with each other as his body. He is the one, he is the goal. It says here, in him, by him, for him, through him, God is the one who has spoken. He is the one who speaks. He is where we are going, is to the presence of Jesus. It is through him, through his presence, indwelling us in his spirit. He's the one that's going to get us there. It's all about Jesus. And so if our affections are somewhere else, I would ask us this morning, do we understand who Jesus actually is? John Calvin, the great theologian, the Reformation said this, the final goal of the blessed life rests in the knowledge of God. We don't need better programs as a church. 
We don't need a better philosophy of church. We don't need better processes or procedures. What we need more than anything else is the presence of God. That's what's going to lead to a blessed life. A great church that is not fueled by a great God is a great tragedy. A great Christian, I'll put that in air quotes, a great Christian that is not fueled by a great God is a great tragedy. Are you going through the motions? Our heartbeat as a church is knowing more of Jesus. That fuels every part of who we are. And we gather each and every week to remember that. One of the most physical and tangible, visible ways that we remember that is through communion. We do it every single week. This represents, this bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. He identified with us. He was broken because of our sin. His blood now covers us and validates us as his children that he has adopted into his family. There's good news there. And so I would plead with you this morning, if you have never repented of your sin, to fall upon the mercy of God today. His grace extends further than you can ever run. Stop putting your faith and your trust in something else, something that he has created, something that you have done, something that you can control. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. Because we don't just keep going, hey, Jesus, thanks for doing that way back then. We appreciate that. Thanks for validating me. And I'll catch up with you on the other side. No, we are meant and designed to experience the presence of God here. Sin separates us from the presence of God. It comes between us and God. And so we repent to God alone. We repent to brothers and sisters of areas of weakness, areas of sin, where there are things between us. We partake as a community. This is a serious time. And so I would ask you this morning, as we partake as families, for those of us who are, who are regenerate, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ and in him alone, this meal is for us. If you never have, or if there is sin in your life and you're just like, I don't want to repent of that sin, this meal is not for you. You can stay there in your seat. Nobody's going to walk, walk around and, uh, and you know, put an X on your forehead or anything like that. But this is for those of us who are repenting of our sin to God. And so this is a serious time. This is uh, a reminder of what Christ has done on the cross. It's also a time for us to not just remember and to repent, for, but for us to rejoice in the fact that our hope is not here. Our hope is with Christ forever. He is the one, he is the heartbeat of this church. He is the heartbeat of his church. Our greatest desire is his presence. 